You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Indonesia's independent anti-corruption agency has been doing good work, perhaps too good for President Joko Widodo's liking. So he's folding it into the more pliable civil service, further entrenching the rot he promised long ago to eradicate. And as time goes on, the geography of vaccine distribution is only growing more unequal. That will come with huge economic costs, and not just to the countries falling behind. Our analyst estimates the global impact of the disparity in jabs and jab knots. First up, though. In Washington today, President Joe Biden will welcome Israel's Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. It's the first in-person meeting between the leaders since Mr. Bennett was sworn in in June. We expect their conversation to be wide-ranging, to cover a range of topics of mutual interest, everything from... Mr. Bennett arrived yesterday to meet with senior administration officials keen to extend goodwill. Israel has no stronger and more reliable ally than the United States of America. You're always with us, you have our back, and that uh, matters a lot to us. I can ensure you that uh, you'll find no friend which is more reliable and appreciative uh, than us. A sentiment shared by America's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Our two countries working together have a very uh, important and very powerful common agenda, and our commitment to uh, that partnership Israel's security is uh, and always will be uh, unshakable. It's a striking change in tone from the past decade, when the relationship between Israel's prime minister and the Democratic Party was more fragile. Both sides seem eager to present this moment as a reset. But beneath the bonhomie lie some stark differences. One reason to expect this meeting to be cordial is that it's coming after 12 years of Benjamin Netanyahu being the Prime Minister of Israel, he had a very strong relationship with previous President Donald Trump, but very stormy relationships with Democrat presidents in the past with Bill Clinton and more recently with Barack Obama. Anshul Pfeffer is The Economist's Israel correspondent and is based in Jerusalem. There is a relief in the Biden administration that Biden doesn't have to contend with Mr. Netanyahu and an expectation of a better relationship with the new young Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. So this meeting then is likely to be one of accord, of friendliness? I think for neither the President or the Prime Minister, there is much interest right now in showing any type of discord. The fact that Bennett is arriving when Biden is under a lot of criticism for his handling of the Afghan debacle and the scenes that we're seeing right now in Kabul could work to Bennett's favor because 
Israel is now one of America's few trustworthy allies in the region, and Bennett will certainly play this up. And I think Biden will probably also be happy to to show that that relationship at least is strong. So the timing is, is actually not so bad for Bennett. But what points of disagreement could upset that plan for, for Harmony? So the agenda may be very different on both sides. Bennett wants to speak mainly about the Iranian issue. He hopes to urge Biden not to rush back to join the Iranian nuclear agreement, which Biden has already expressed an interest in rejoining after Trump withdrew from the agreement. Though it has become more difficult for the U.S. to do that now that there's a different, much more hardline president in Tehran, whereas Biden will probably want to press Senate also on the Palestinian issue. The Biden administration hasn't changed some of Trump's policies. The American embassy is now based in Jerusalem. They're not going to change that. At the same time, the administration has rolled back some of Trump's policies on the Israel-Palestine conflict. The Trump peace plan was called back in the day. The deal of the century is no longer on the table. So that may be something that Biden will raise in the meeting. But the Bennett coalition, which is a very diverse group of parties ranging from the Israeli rights to the left and an Arab party as well, that's one front on which this government can do very little if it wants to, to stick together. So Bennett will not be able to promise him anything. And what's your view on on the likelihood, given all of these potential sources for tension, that these two leaders will work well together? How much reason do they have to expect that they will? I think that there's a good chance that they will because, first of all, the Biden administration really is eager to see the Bennett coalition sticking together. They don't want to see Netanyahu returning to the prime minister's office in Jerusalem. So I think that they will be very anxious to show, at least outwardly, that there's very little disagreement between them. Bennett certainly wants to, you know, this is his first high-level diplomatic meeting as prime minister. He certainly wants to present this to Israelis back home as a successful meeting. If tensions between Israel and the Palestinians on the ground increase in the next few months, then the U.S. will have to make some tougher decisions and perhaps put some pressure on Israel. The same goes regarding Iran. If the U.S. find a way to re-engage with the Iranian leadership and re-enter the nuclear agreement, this will undoubtedly cause some tension with Israel. But right now, it's hard to predict if and when either of those developments will take place. So putting aside the immediate political considerations for, for these two leaders, what does all this tell you about what we can expect from the Biden presidency as far as a, a broader position toward Israel? So it's worth remembering that the first meeting between a different president and another prime minister 12 years ago between Barack Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu did not work as planned. Obama sprang a surprise on Netanyahu and demanded that Israel immediately freeze all settlement building, something which Israel did for a while, but that did very little to help the Israel-Palestine diplomatic process. The chances of Biden doing that in his meeting with Bennett, I think, are small because unlike Obama, who came to the presidency with very ambitious plans of solving the Israel-Palestine conflict, Joe Biden is a much more experienced foreign policy hand. And I think that he doesn't need this to start taking away attention from the much more burning issues he's handling, whether it's Afghanistan abroad or COVID-19 at home. The Middle East, specifically the Israel-Palestine conflict, is not high on his agenda. He doesn't really think that he can solve this conflict that has eluded so many 
previous American presidents. Thanks very much for your time, Angel. Thank you for having me, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. When Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, came to power in 2014, he did so on a wave of optimism and goodwill. Jokowi, as he's known, was hailed at home and abroad as a reformer, a solution to Indonesia's decades-long problem with corruption. In picking his first cabinet, Jokowi spoke of how the process had been done carefully and cautiously in order to select those he described as clean. Memang proses penetapan menteri ini saya lakukan dengan hati-hati dan cermat. Dengan hati-hati dan cermat. Seven years later, the Indonesian people have reason to be incredibly disappointed in their president's cleanup efforts, though it seems few of them are. Corruption is a really big problem in Indonesia. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent and is based in Singapore. Last year, the global watchdog Transparency International said that the country is more corrupt than even Brazil or India. Whether we're talking about the judiciary or the civil service, the police, parliament, graft is an endemic issue in government. And how did that come to be? Why is corruption such a problem in Indonesia? So the man who ruled Indonesia for three decades, towards the end of the 20th century, he built this kleptocracy. So by the time that President Suharto was ousted from power in the late 1990s, he had amassed this enormous fortune. Some estimated that it was worth $38 billion. In 1998, many of the officials who used the state as a kind of personal piggy bank during the era of Suharto carried on in their jobs. And we see that new politicians carry on with these corrupt practices. But the current leader, Jokowi, was supposed to change all of that. Yeah, he absolutely was. When he was elected, he promised to protect civil liberties, promote better governance. But within a year of his taking office, there were already signs that Indonesia was regressing to its old authoritarian ways. So under Jokowi, the state has ramped up efforts to suppress views that it doesn't like. So for instance, in 2017, the government gave itself the power to disband civil society organizations on national security grounds. It deals harshly with protesters and ordinary citizens who criticize the government online. And very concerningly, Jokowi is eroding checks on his power. He's trying to do away with political opposition by, for instance, manipulating the boards of two rival parties to ensure that loyalist factions are in control. His government has also coerced opposition politicians with threats of prosecution into supporting his re-election. 
Worst of all, he is even undermining the organization which is supposed to tackle corruption. In what way? So the Corruption Eradication Commission, or KPK as it's known, was set up in 2003 to tackle graft. And it's investigated a bunch of very high-profile people, and it's very good at what it does. So these investigations have resulted in the convictions of over 900 people, among them cabinet ministers and even the father-in-law of a former president. In a way, the KPK has been too successful. It's created for itself a ton of enemies. The agency has been targeted by police officers, parliamentarians, and now even by Jokowi. By September, the KPK will have been folded into the civil service. So as part of that transition, all staff have had to take entrance tests. But this exam wasn't the standard issue exam. It seems it was designed to ensure that many of the KPK employees would fail. Many of them did, and dozens of KPK employees, including some of the agency's best investigators, have been sacked as a result of this process. But Jokowi has been uh, elected as a reformer twice, in fact. What do the Indonesian people think of, of, of all of this? Jokowi is still very popular with lots of Indonesians. It's important to note that he doesn't come from the political elite, unlike most politicians in Indonesia. He started out in his career as a furniture maker. He's seen as somebody who understands the problems of regular people, and he's focused on the economy. He's building infrastructure that Indonesia so desperately needs, and people see that and they like that. On occasion, the president does remind voters of a more liberal bent of the candidate that they thought they had elected. He visits far-flung regions, which are home to most ethnic minorities, much more often than his predecessors did. When they were figuring out who to elect in 2019, they looked at the other candidate for president and they didn't like what they saw. Prabowo Subianto is a, a demagogue accused of committing human rights abuses while he was in the military. So forced to choose between the two, a lot of people went for Chikoi. So if he remains popular even while curtailing freedoms, what does that tell you about the, the future of democracy in Indonesia? Surveys show that Indonesians really like democracy. In the last presidential election, 80% of registered voters went out to vote. The trouble is when you start to dig down into those numbers, you see some troubling signs. Most Indonesians see democracy not as a system for promoting liberal values, but as a system for delivering economic benefits. And that's what Jokowi is doing. He has brought economic benefits to Indonesians. They are getting richer under his presidency. As long as that keeps on happening, a lot of Indonesians won't mind having their political rights stripped from them. Thanks very much for joining us, Charlie. Thank you, Jason. The director of the World Health Organization is frustrated. I'm disappointed. Because so far, 4.8 billion doses have been delivered globally. 75% of that is in 10 countries. 10. Do you think this is acceptable? We call it vaccine injustice. On Monday, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus called for a two-month moratorium on third vaccine doses against COVID-19 so that others can get their first. Rich countries have administered a hundred times as many vaccines as poorer ones have, owing to limits on cash, on supply, and on public appetite for them. The latest report from the Economist Intelligence Unit, our sister research arm, estimates the global economic costs of that disparity. What we did is that we built a model that combined forecasts for two things. 
first vaccination timelines in around 200 countries, and second, GDP growth estimates for all of these countries. Agathe Demarais is the EIU's Global Forecasting Director. And then I would say we asked ourselves a very simple question. If every country around the world managed to vaccinate the majority of their population by mid-2022, what would that mean for the global economy? Faster vaccination timelines would add 2.3 trillion US dollars to global GDP by 2025. Or if we see the glass half empty instead, vaccine inequity will cost 2.3 trillion US dollar. And just to put this into perspective, that's roughly the size of a large economy like France. And unsurprisingly, emerging countries will shoulder two-thirds of these losses. So emerging economies will, will bear the brunt of it, you say. I mean, wh which regions will be hit most? So there are two ways to look at things, in absolute or in relative terms. And in absolute terms, I would say Asia will be the worst hit by delayed vaccination timelines. Actually, the projected cumulative losses amount to around 1.7 trillion US dollars, that is to say two-thirds of the global costs. But if we take a look at things by share of GDP in relative terms, then sub-Saharan Africa will be the worst hit, with a hit of around 3% of the region's forecast GDP in 2022-2025. And of course, vaccine inequality isn't just harmful in economic terms. No, absolutely. I would actually say that the economic impact is lower than the impact in other spheres. So of course, we have more illness, worse healthcare outcomes because of vaccine inequity. But also, I would say that vaccine inequity will reshape the global political and social landscape. First, politically, social unrest. Because of lack of vaccines, a lot of people around the world are unhappy with local governments, which are seen as unable to provide vaccines. And also there's a lot of resentment against more developed economies, which are seen as hoarding vaccines. Another consequence will be on tourism and travel generally, because people who come from unvaccinated places will be barred from entering vaccinated countries. And the other way around, some people from vaccinated places like the UK may be hesitant to visit countries that do not have high vaccination rates. And finally, geopolitically, that's also a big consequence. Vaccine diplomacy from Russia and China will really get a boost from vaccine inequity because Russia and China are presenting themselves as the saviors of the emerging world. But not presumably enough to get rid of the overall vaccine inequality. I mean, what chance is there that things will become more equitable? Well, the situation is pretty stark, and there is really little chance that the divide over vaccines is going to ever be bridged. There are actually three options for countries that want to access vaccines faster. The first one would be COVAX, the WHO-sponsored initiative to ship doses of vaccines to emerging countries. But it really hasn't succeeded in sharing doses around the world. When we take a look at the data, COVAX has shipped 210 million jabs so far, which is far from the goal that COVAX had set of 1.9 billion jabs shipped this year. And actually, 210 million vaccines is only enough to cover 15% of the population of lower-income economies. The second option is donations from wealthier countries, but these are coming under pressure from their population to do booster jabs and to vaccinate children. And at any rate, donations are falling well short of promises anyway. And finally, the third option is really the vaccine diplomacy from Russia and China. But the bottom line is that the rich-poor divide of our access to vaccines will probably widen in the coming months and years, and it will reshape the world for a long period of time. Thanks very much for joining us, Agat. Thank you.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.